This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Sonics goes high. And the NTSB launches an interactive accident database. I dodge a spinning bullet. Others aren't so lucky. And the proposed Cessna High Wing SPAR inspection is now an AD. Finally, the manufacturers are back, baby. And are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Karina Lotman. She's a new stoller that uh, you found at an event a couple months ago, a young dynamic pilot. She works for Textron, I think, has a flight school. She's she's busy. She is, and she was learning how to fly a Cessna 150 in the stall configuration for stall drag. And it goes to show you, Ian, that just about anyone can run what you brung in some of these competitions. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, so we're going to get to her in a little bit. First, we're going to talk about Sonics, which actually, when this comes out, would be a great stall entrant, I think. Sonic's sort of seeing the same writing on the wall, I think, that Vans did, is going high wing with their latest model. Sonic's is going high wing, and uh, we were just talking about this before we started the recording, Ian, and the name for the new Sonic's high wing is? <laughs> the Sonic's high wing. The Sonic's high wing, right. The interesting part of that is that, that I think you are right. They took a page out of the Vans book and decided to go high wing. You know, a lot of the Sonics have that V-tail design also. The high wing does not. It's got a standard tail design. It's really interesting to me, Ian, because this particular aircraft can be aerobatic capable with two people aboard. And it is a two-person SLSA, Special Light Sport Aircraft. It's got a lot of interesting features. I think it's going to be very popular. One of the interesting features to me is the entry price, which is about $30,000 $30, for the kit. Yeah, so that'll be for the kit. They're talking about maybe doing a quick build for a little bit more money and then the SLSA being even more money. But that is, you know, Sonics are known as being really affordable to get into. So this follows that, and that's awesome. I forget how small some of these are sometimes, the Sonics. So you get you got to be like, you got to be a little more you know, pint size that I think than I am, for example. So for example, the Sonics high wing is designed to have, this is Nikki Britton's story on our website, a 42 inch wide interior, which is quite a bit more narrow than a lot of the other two seats out there. That's a good point, Ian. Yeah. Yeah. Although they are making it, I think they understand this at Sonics and they're trying to uh, increase the cabin size a little bit. So the step in height is going to be less than two feet. So it'll sit lower to the ground and the wing will be at four and a half feet. So that's kind of like 
you know, if you think about that. It is. You have to bend down a little bit for that. Yeah. But that could be good for folks who might have some physical challenges, That's Ian, true. and that might enable them to, to learn how to fly. And the other thing about that is that you could have either a single control stick or a Y grip, and that could, you know, that uh, having a central Y grip might be an easier entry yeah. from the left or from the right. So that could be kind of cool. Yeah, they're hoping to be able to offer a BRS, uh, so lots of modern safety stuff there. Good point on the parachute, absolutely. Yeah, and they're known to be, I think, easier to build. They're they're relatively C, you know, and then the quick build even even quicker. So, yeah, that's cool. Th- this will be people love these. Our old colleague uh, Sierra Hare, I know, loves Sonics. She's looking into them and wanting to buy one. So, well, I'll tell you what else is cool. The the Sonics Microjet is really neat. You yeah. see those performing at air shows like we did last weekend at the Buckeye Air Fair. Uh, there was a Sonics Microjet in the air show, and they're just so cool. It's just really neat. But uh, n- no word yet on whether or not the high wing will be jet-powered. Jet-powered, yeah. They'll have the jet. <laughs> Most people are going electric. They're going to go jet. Yeah. All right. So, David, accidents. I know we go from, like, a really high note to a sour note. But the NTSB, which is generally, you know, they put out all this data and all this accident data, but they don't do a whole lot of analysis. Actually, the AOPA or Safety Institute does a lot of that. But you found and shared with me this tool, the NTSB new accent tool that I got to say, at first I was like, oh, so what? But you get into it for just a couple minutes. This thing is so cool. It is, Ian, because you could look at the accents by year or or sort or by category, by phases of flight. And when you change things around, you get a little bit deeper dive into what might have been the cause of an accident or some of the results there when you when you start doing a dive into the uh, accidents by calendar year or the situation that you might find. It also shows you where most of the accidents have occurred geographically and also by defining event like we see uh, it could be like a system component failure power plant failure, loss of control in flight, some of the usual suspects. But I, th- I find that this might be a very powerful tool for us to look at and try to analyze a little bit more and maybe avoid some of these situations. Yeah. So I like the findings tab in particular. So this is where they've you know, collected all of their final reports. So you go back a couple of years where they've obviously done a lot of these already. I'm in 20, I'm looking at 2018. They've got 1,257, and then you can just go and click on one of these bars. So, for example, uh, I'm going to go to aircraft. So there's a 1,000 dealing with aircraft, and they quickly, those subdivide even more. Now we can look at some of those aircraft systems, power plant, fluids, miscellaneous. So I'll go to systems. All you have to do is click on it, and then even more, it breaks it down. Breaks it down to landing gear accidents, fuel, yeah. uh, electrical power problems. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. great to know. Yeah. So it's really cool. I mean, you can even break it down farther. So we're in landing gear systems. Now we know, okay, so are people having accidents because of, and you can see right here uh, in 2018, it was because of the biggest category was gear retraction and then brakes and then main landing gear failures. And so you can do that in any of the categories. It's really, it's a really quick, efficient way if you're interested in either just sort of browsing or really diving deep on one particular type of accident. I find that to be very helpful. And if you wanted to look at, for instance, power plant findings, mm-hmm. uh, you can do a deep dive into that too. And it, and it subdivides it down into the different types of engines that you have. Yeah. And then uh, the different types of failure. So, uh, yeah, that could be very helpful when we actually will probably be talking about this in a little bit anyway yeah. uh, later in the show. So uh, that's pretty important NTSB 
interactive uh, findings chart. I enjoyed seeing that, and I'm glad that we now have another tool in our tool belt. Yeah. So to find it, just go to the NTSB's website. I think it's right there on the front page. Or you can go to AOPA, look into the news story about it, and we'll link to it. So, all right. I have to say, I feel so fortunate. With bated breath, I was waiting for this Continental Service Bulletin. So we talked about this on the last show. Cirrus, this started with Cirrus announcing that it was grounding its fleet preemptively. They had a fleet-wide stand down. And then, uh, then the word started circulating, well, why did Cirrus decide to ground their fleet with their um, continental engines. They're everything but the jet. Yeah. yeah. Yep, that's right. So we started to get sort of piecemeal information. We found out pretty quickly, actually, after we released, after we recorded the show, that this went beyond the 550s and the CRI to some other continentals. Then we find oh, out yeah. it's, a, it's a crankshaft counterweight installation issue. Apparently, there was at least, I think, one installer who was installing these incorrectly. So we just bought, just installed a new IO360. It was included in some of the kind of the rumors in the Continental Statement. They thought, oh my God, our brand new engine. We're going to have to remove cylinders just to look at this thing. Well, right. hate that. Thankfully, we only had to wait a couple of days. Continental did put out the service bulletin. Our particular engine was not included. Whew, thank God. Woo, man. Others, unfortunately, are not so lucky. The Continental Service Bulletin calls for a mandatory inspection if your engine is at fewer than 200 hours among dozens of engines i think there were over a thousand new crankshafts if you're replacing a crankshaft and here i am bearing the lead just today as we record this the ad has been issued so this now will become mandatory from this moment forward so it's a final ad now and folks really need to uh, buckle up and get ready for this because there are over 2,000 crankshaft assemblies that might be subject to this unsafe condition. And, you know, for me, it's always the bottom line, you know, how much is it going to cost? Now, a lot of the engines will be under warranty, so that could be helpful. Yeah. But if they're not, for instance, and it's, a, it's one of the six-cylinder engines, you've got to remove three cylinders to get to a chance to inspect that crankshaft. And we're looking at 22 work hours at 85 bucks an hour, which I mean, that's a great price for a mechanic. I'd, I'd jack that up to about 115 an hour. <laughs> I was going to say. But the FAA estimated the, that at 85 bucks an hour, that'd be yeah. about a little bit less than $1,900 and $65 for the inspection in case you needed to reposition the counterweight and another 120, 27 bucks to reposition that. So, all in all, you know, it's going to be several thousand dollars, and we already know that engine mechanics are are woefully behind, as it as in your case. It took you, what, six months to get your engine rebuilt? Did you get it rebuilt, or did, was it actually a new engine from the manufacturer? It was a brand new engine, which I know sounds a little bit crazy. Like, why would you buy a new engine when it's time to overhaul? But I have a couple of co-owners. And we did the math and it's like, okay, we, do we want to be down for six, eight months? So, you know, a few shops were saying that they could overhaul it in four months, but you don't believe that these days. You think, okay, four months actually means six months. So do we want to be down for half a year for this thing? Or do we just want to kick in a little bit more money each and go for a rebuild? And so we priced it out and the rebuild, I think the difference between the rebuild and the brand new engine was only 1500 bucks. Okay. And when you're spending... God, I don't even know what it was, 40, 48, 49,000, something, 50, 60. I don't even remember. 
the total amount. Let's just call it fifty thousand dollars for a new engine. I just know what my portion was. Yeah, when you're when you're parsing it out, you know, fifteen hundred bucks is not that much difference. And so we just went new. And they did, it did take six months. They delivered on time. So hats off to Continental for that. Yeah. But, you know, as we talk about often on Ask the ANPs, removing a cylinder is not something to be taken not, lightly. Not ideal no. at all. And removing no. multiples at one time is a big deal. So that, that removing a cylinder can lead to an engine failure, uh, which I had. And actually, I talked to another Mooney owner. One of our You Can Fly teachers, Jonas De Leon, and he had a Mooney K model that had the same failure. And in that case, it was a through bolt, a bolt that goes from one side of the engine through a cylinder on one side all the way through the engine to the cylinder on the other side. So what can happen is that those could be under torqued or over torqued, and you can have extra stress on that. And that could lead to some major problems. As you said, you know, ask the A&Ps, that subject comes up a lot of times. It does. Yeah, they they are, Mike and, and Paul and Colleen are very, very careful about they, in fact, they try and remove cylinders only when it's absolutely necessary, and in many cases, it's not. And part of the reason is because you get these maintenance-induced failures after reinstalling these things if you don't do it properly. Yeah. I will say, from the AD, we hadn't we hadn't known yet how many engines this is actually, what what sort of field problems there have been yet as a result of this improperly installed counterweight. And what they said in the final rule is that there are two ground seizures already and one in-flight loss of oil pressure. It sounds like somebody was on the ball and landed before the engine totally came apart. So it obviously is a problem. They also, the service bulletin called for, if you had more than 200 hours on the engine, you could avoid the inspection. Right. Yeah, the AD says no. You have to do that. Continental didn't give them enough justification for that, and the FAA is requiring that, regardless of how many you have on that new engine, that it be inspected. So... We will have to wait and see what happens here. Right, and you were saying the effective date is today, today, which is February the 23rd as we record Hangar Talk. Folks really do need to take note of the date. Yeah. After the effective date, do not install on any engine a crankshaft assembly having the serial number, blah, blah, blah. You know, so, so engines that might be in the shop right now, you know, for some type of overhaul or update would also be affected. So you have to make sure that your engine shop takes heed as well yeah that's right it all depends on that manufacturer date and then you got to look into the service bulletin to know whether your specific engine i guess continental was able to isolate the i guess the person i'm assuming who was doing the installation incorrectly and so if that person worked on your engine i, I think i'm this again i want to make sure that it's clear that i'm just sort of assuming this has happened because it is only a certain set excuse me a certain set of serial numbers within certain types of engines. certain dates yeah yeah let's remind folks one more time that it could be the series it could be the 360 series the 470 series the 520s and the 550 series but yeah definitely check the date as well because yeah. that that will determine whether or not you have a, a, a potential issue yeah and if you are within that date then you have to go to the service bulletin and we'll be right back all right, David, unfortunately, another AD we have to talk about, and this one potentially even more catastrophic for some owners, is the 210 and 177 SPAR AD. We've mentioned this a couple times. It is now final. AOPA pushed hard on a couple of provisions of this. On Some of them the FAA listened to, some they did not. Yeah, so the Cessna 177 and 210 high wing, strutless high wing models now have a mandatory AD here, and we're looking at 
you know, a pretty costly way to inspect and then and potentially fix these. The FAA estimates that the inspections will cost about $3,100 to about $3,800, uh, depending on if you have air conditioning or oxygen. But if you have a problem, it could theoretically cost up to $40,000 to replace the spar of a Cessna 177, although this has not been done yet. Jim Moore's article says it is theoretical, you know, uh, in nature. But the idea is not theoretical. So uh, a particular note, though, Ian, um, none of the 177s have failed in flight. And, and this all goes back to, I believe it was an Australian 210 that was doing power line inspections and, and really flew a lot. It was an aircraft that had a lot of hours on it, but it did have structural failure, catastrophic structural failure. So that is how this started, uh, I want to say a couple of years ago. Yeah, boy, th this is a, a difficult situation, and it's something I think we're going to see more often, which is that some of these airplanes that are a little bit older, they're used in different ways throughout their lives, right? And as a result, you're going to have different risk profiles, but the regs largely don't account for that. So, for example, this 210, uh, you're right, it was doing low-level, turbulent, flying a lot higher wing loading, you know, some of those guys make tighter turns, that sort of thing over and over again. And so that comment came out fairly often, I think, to the AD, which is that, hey, the, this this flight profile is not anything like a normal flight profile for these airplanes. And the FAA said, well, sorry, you're going to have to do it anyway. And, you know, to a certain extent, I can understand why, because they wrote in the, in the AD in the comments that out of, so people put in field reports, right? We have talked about that on the show. And out of 211 cardinal reports, inspection reports that the FAA had received as of January 13th, 2023, 120 of those did report corrosion. And of those, 14 had to be taken out of service. So that's a significant number when you yeah. look at it, break it down that way. Now, those are folks who responded to, I want to say that was an, an AOPA survey that we sent out. Yeah. Uh, that folks responded to that. The other thing to think about is that some of the newer Cessna 210s really don't have that problem yet. And that there was a very low percentage among the newer Cessna 210s for the rate of corrosion. But the older Cessna 210s, the rate of corrosion discovery was higher at 47%. So uh, that's almost half of the ones that were inspected. Yeah, it just goes to show, and we talked about this last time, that when these things come up to report the incidence of, let's call it corrosion or cracks or whatever it happens to be on these airplanes, you even if you don't find it, you have to report that. Like you have to say it was a clean bill of health because it impacts the rate at which the FAA thinks this is happening in the field. And if all they get is negative news, that's what they think is going on. And so we have to also tell them the other side. But that's sort of beside the point at this uh, at this point for this AD. So that was published February 13th. Look for it on the AOPA website. It becomes effective March 20th. And uh, boy, Cardinal and 210 owners, I feel for you. A&Ps are going to be kind of busy with the Eddie Curran inspections. I got a feeling. Yep. All right. Some happier news, David. Let's end on a high note. Gamma, the final report was just out for the 2022 numbers. We love to talk about this. And it is great news across the board. Yeah, you can say that again, Ian. It looks like uh, deliveries were up across the board. Piston airplanes saw... About an 8.2% increase over 2021. 
uh, turboprops, 10, uh, over 10%. Even business jets were up a small percentage. And uh, that is good news for the air aviation industry, GA industry. We have noted that there's uh, continue to be some supply line problems that we, as we just talked about, uh, when you were telling us a little bit about your engine overhaul, I mean, your new engine actually purchase. So there are still some sticky points there, but we're looking at deliveries that were valued at, this is through the whole line of, of aircraft uh, that we talk about, deliveries were valued at $26.8 billion, which is an increase of 6% over the previous year. So good news. Now, 2021 was a good year compared to 2020. And we usually we usually go back to 2019 if we want some real definitive results. Yeah. And, and actually, Gamma has done that a little bit for us. They understanding, I think, that people were starting to look at 2019. They do have something up on their website. I think they did this maybe at the uh, last year's report. At the end of last year's report, they started to look across the multiple years because of COVID and how it made everything kind of wonky. So just real quick before we get into some specific aircraft, 2019 total airplane shipments were 2670 and 2022, they were 2818, already past 2019 numbers, which is great considering those supply chain problems. Helicopters in 2019 were 877, last year 876. So we're almost there with the helicopter industry. So overall, I would say we are back to by far and and beyond even to some pre-COVID levels. And so that is great news. Some manufacturers Man. Some manufacturers did better than others, so Ian. Holy we, cow. We like to do a, a deep dive uh, into that, and you lead the way with that usually, and there's some astounding numbers, so give us the lowdown. Yeah, so I just quickly wanted to run through earlier, 2021 versus 2022, and I was kind of looking at them, and, and by and large, I think all but maybe one of the GA manufacturers were up year over year, which is great, great news, but the one that you just got to just be I mean, you just got to give them some applause and just be astounded by what they're doing. And that is Cirrus. They just continue to climb and climb. And you think they've hit this peak and they just keep going up and up. So 2021, they delivered 528 aircraft. And in 2022, it was 629. So they were up by more than 100. 629 aircraft from the folks at Cirrus. And that is substantial because we're looking now at uh, Textron Aviation across the board in 2022 deliveries were 568. That includes all of their Citation Jets, the Sky Courier, the Bonanza Line, the 172s and everything else. And looking back at 2021, now I'm holding in my hand the older report and that was 546 units from uh, 2021 year end. So they went up about 20 units, but still a hundred behind Cirrus. Yeah. So that makes Cirrus. I mean, you think about everything that Textron makes. I mean, the list is like, you know, single in, well, we we've talked about how good they're vertically integrated in their product line, right? So you got single engine and turboprop and twin engine piston and jets, light jets, and all the way up through. So you always have to say with Cirrus, you know, they say, oh, we're the biggest GA manufacturer, but you'd have to qualify that with, you know, biggest piston light GA manufacturer. They are now the biggest manufacturer, period, by a pretty large margin. And that that's incredible. Well, you know what? I was just thinking about this. Um, I'm not sure that the 2022 numbers 
include Pipistrel. Didn't Textron buy Pipistrel? Oh, that's for a great the, point, because, actually. Yeah, because they bought it for the electric technology. Yeah. So we probably need to look super quick at the at Pipistrel, Pipistrel aircraft deliveries. Yeah. So there were 41 deliveries in 2022 it's going to take me a minute to figure out what that what people <laughs> did uh, the previous year yeah well they were they i think they were one of the few that were down a little bit i guess we need to add those to the numbers yeah well just it puts cessna just above 600 but actually still behind cirrus yeah incredible and i wonder how piper's doing because you know they had a big uh, cut of the training market there for a pretty good while. I know they haven't built many twins in a while. In fact, this year they delivered zero arrows and zero Senecas. But Piper didn't do too bad for a smaller company. 236 total units delivered. And I would say most of those, just looking at the numbers real quick, most of those are the, the Pilot 100i or the Archer 3 that counted together for about 150 units or so. Uh, they built a couple of Seminoles. Yeah, they did build. I will say a Piper. Yeah. yeah, Piper is actually, they're now in a position where they have unique offerings in the market. So twin-engine trainers. So that's the Seminole. They built, like you said, 21 of those. I mean, I guess you could say maybe diamonds, twins, or sort of trainers, but they're a diesel, and that's a little bit different. So yeah, so they've got that twin-engine trainer. They also have the M350, which is really a unique airplane, and they built 19 of those, and the M600, which fills a niche that, that nobody else has, and they've built 41 of those. So they're doing really well with those. Right, and don't forget, with those higher-end Pipers, they also have Autoland technology, so that's a safer aircraft. Yeah. So they were up about 20 uh, units uh, compared to last year, just roughly off the, off the top of my head. They were 236 delivered this year, and Piper delivered... 200. Oh, so they were up almost 30. They delivered 207 last year. But look, if you break that down, that's that's three more aircraft per month. So that's keeping the assembly line going. It, to me, it says that they're cranking up a little bit more and might even have um, you know increased deliveries in the near future as well as things start to settle out. Yeah. I think the only one I found was Diamond. They were down maybe two units. I think Pipistrel was also down, but that maybe is to be expected given the transition. They probably had some you know, time to work through some of their issues. But everybody else that, that I can, I mean, Technum, I think was up just very slightly. The Aerobats, the Extras, the Game Birds, they were up. Icon was up. One thing that was sad to see was Mooney, which had a zero next to its name last year, is completely off the report this year. Yeah. So sad to see that. Well, I'll tell you what I found just by uh, doing some recent internet chatting and things like mm -hmm. that. They haven't delivered any new aircraft, but the Mooney factory in Kerrville, Texas, is still um, there and operating. And they've actually turned their sights towards uh, doing service mm -hmm. and, the an and annuals for folks who have Moonies. And they have about a five-month backlog to uh, get an appointment for an annual oh, inspection awesome. so that it that shows me that they have workers that are there you know they're they are making uh, spare parts and they're servicing and keeping the older aircraft up in the air but you're right no new aircraft have been uh, coming off that line but i think that is by design so Maybe in the future we'll see some changes there, but you're right. They were not on the report. Now, they don't have to participate in that report, Ian, I'm, I'm, I don't think. so. Right. Um, but they were they were there in 2021. All right. So, yeah, like we said, good news all around and want to see that uh, keep going. So, David, Karina Lotman, speaking of actually manufacturers, a Textron demo pilot, a flight school owner, we'll call her. I think she might be an independent CFI, but she's got a really nice web presence for her flight school. 
and also, for our purposes, a new stole pilot. Mayday stall drag in Wayne, Nebraska with Karina Lotman. Karina, you have a Cessna 150 behind you. Tell me about the airplane. I do. It's a 1967 uh, Cessna 150H model. I've had it for about a year and a half now. I originally bought it to give uh, flight lessons in it. Um, I've given over 800 hours in that short time of lessons in it. I soloed many people. A lot of people have taken their check rides, got their private certificates in it. And I don't do much instruction in it now. Um, I just fly it for fun and I decided I would race it. It's what I got, so I'm going to race what I got. Yeah, you run what you brung, like yep. they say. Yep. All right, so you don't uh, use it for instruction much anymore because you actually have a real job. I what do. What is that? Yep, I stopped instructing about half a year ago and now I work at Textron Aviation. I'm a demonstration pilot for, for them down in Wichita, Kansas. And what other aircraft do you fly when you're not flying the 150 here? Yeah, so we fly the Cessna and Beechcraft uh, products. Right now I fly mostly the Piston airplanes, so 172, 82, 206, and the Beechcraft Baron and Bonanza. Fantastic. So uh, before we talk a little bit about stall drag, let's talk about the career for a minute. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved in that particular part of aviation? Because that's something that a lot of people don't really think about when they think about aviation jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, going through college, I was very uh, career focused as far as the airlines. I was dead set that I was going to go to the airlines. When I hit my thousand hours, I no longer wanted to go to the airlines. I just kind of lost the interest in it. And so I was looking for that next thing, but I didn't really know what that was. Uh, last year, I actually just went to Oshkosh, and I have a buddy uh, who I went to college with who's now my coworker. He was explaining the job he has, and I'm like, that sounds awesome. I want to do that job. Um, before I knew it, the next day, I was talking to a guy who's now my manager, and a month later, I had been interviewed and hired, and I absolutely love it. That's fantastic. That goes to show you it's who you know, the connection you make, and you got to be bold and ask for stuff sometimes, right? Yeah, absolutely, yep. Well, that sounds like a good job. Let's bring it back here to the windy Wayne <laughs> Municipal Airport here in Wayne, Nebraska. You did a little bit of stole practice yesterday. Tell me about what was going through your mind during practice. Yeah, a lot of things. I was very nervous when we first went out yesterday. I had practiced a bunch on my own, but to actually kind of be in front of people, not necessarily the spectators, but kind of the people who are running it, telling us what to do, kind of guiding us. You know, it was my time to kind of show what I could do, show my skill. So I was very nervous that I was going to do something wrong or just not show up and prove uh, that I have the skill. Um, but as we were doing more runs, I was just getting more and more calm. I just felt really comfortable. Um, I have a ton of hours in this plane, uh, not necessarily doing this type of stuff, uh, but I can fly uh, the pants off the plane. And uh, so yeah, it was just a, a lot of lot of thoughts. Now, where do you live and did you fly this airplane from home here? Yeah, I live in Wichita, Kansas now, and I flew it uh, from there here. I came in on Wednesday night. Uh, it took me about three and a half hours in this okay. plane. Mm -hmm. Very good, and the 150 is a pretty 
reasonable airplane to fly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks might not think about that when they're thinking about stall competition. Mm -hmm. Tell yeah. me about that. What, what, what made you decide to take the 150 and do the stall? You said you wanted to improve your skills a little bit, mm -hmm. but I mean, you. You probably could have jumped on a different kind of airplane. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, most planes out here, um, as anybody can obviously tell, are tailwheel airplanes. My plane is not a tailwheel airplane. They're better equipped for short takeoff and landing events like this. Uh, but I don't have one of those planes. I have a 150. And, but there's no reason that I can't go out and show what I can do. There's a few other tricycle gear planes here that are doing the same exact thing that I am. And so I just figured I'd, I'd use what I have and, and give it a try. Absolutely. There was another 150 I saw. There's mm -hmm. a Cessna 205. Mm -hmm. and, a 172. Uh, a 172. There's mm -hmm. a 182, I think, that was oh, yep. in a different yep. class. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Now, mm -hmm. I, I photographed and videotaped you a little bit. You did quite well on some of the short landings. Mm -hmm. Tell me what was going through your mind when you're pulling all that together. Yeah, it all just happened so quick. You know, we're pulling the power back. We're throwing our flaps in. We're looking for the line. We're trying to land on the line, not before the line, but past the line. So it's a lot of just hyper focus, but also hyper awareness of everything around you and what's going on and just locking into that and, you know, just kind of trusting your skill there and hoping that you have the correct energy management and, and all that sort of stuff going into it. Now, organizer Kevin Quinn was chastising some of the pilots because he didn't feel like with a crosswind there was enough right aileron going on here. How did mm -hmm. that figure into your um, strategy? Yeah, a uh, little bit kind of just here and there. Uh, the wind, we've had a crosswind the whole time. It's been changing on us. We'll have a headwind and a tailwind and all the all the things. Uh, he made a big emphasis. A lot of the guys aren't using their aileron controls when they're taxiing on the ground. And I think that was probably more of maybe what he was talking about at that time. Uh, for me, that's a no-brainer. Uh, as I just recently and still am, you know, an active flight instructor, I, you know, hound that into my students. So obviously that's engraved in me to keep doing that, uh, where some of these guys haven't had a flight lesson in a, in a long time. And so those parts of it have kind of escaped them. So it was just his reminder of, you know, make sure you turn your aileron the right way when you're on the ground, just because it's so windy as we're taxiing back into the pits. Sounds good. Now, how did the 152, when you're coming in low and slow, throwing those flaps down. You got some stall fences on top of this wing, I noticed. How did it do overall? How do you feel? I think it did pretty good. I'm very underpowered compared to some of these other planes, and that's just expected. I'm just in a different kind of category almost of my own. Uh, but the 150 does have a stool kit on it. It came with that when I bought it. And, and but it does it does really good. I can spot land it pretty well. Uh, yesterday, when I didn't have a tailwind, uh, well, with a good headwind, I can get my takeoff to about 300 or so feet. And so that can kind of contend with the rest of them. And, and takeoff's no different. It is, if I can land on that line with that slip going slow, uh, it maybe takes 100 feet for me to get stopped. I think you I think you took it on the landings on a couple of times compared to other folks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so a couple of final words here. You're a female in aviation. That's a tough mm -hmm. gig. Mm -hmm. How can we get more women involved in aviation? And for that matter, more diversity. Yeah, just exposing them at a young age. Um, I'm very active with the Young Eagles events through the EIA. I absolutely love going to these fly-ins. They're great. So I encourage everybody if they have, you know, young young daughters, young children, uh, sisters, whatever, to bring them to these events. Let them see how cool this is. Because this isn't your average, you know, traffic pattern that we're flying. We're doing some cool stuff. And there's no reason that other girls can't do this either. It just takes an early 
them to see it early on, you know, to know that this is even a possibility. A lot of people don't even know that they could go fly an airplane for a career, uh, but there's so many possibilities out here. They just have to be exposed to it at that early age. I think that's significant what you just said, that a lot of people are not aware that aviation is a career in the first mm -hmm. place, yeah. and especially for women and, and, you know, for diverse populations. Mm -hmm. And once they know a little bit more about it, maybe they could pursue that yeah. with someone like you that's helping to encourage them. If they see you doing it, yeah. that could inspire others. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I will say, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about Stoll, but I do like the aspect that it welcomes people with all different types of airplanes, all different skill levels to, to go and have some fun and try and increase their abilities. That, that aspect I, I really love. I think that's cool. Yeah, and I think it makes you a better pilot, as uh, as we heard and as we can see by folks who run what you brung, you know, whether you have a Cessna 150 or 152, or, you know, I saw some folks uh, actually at the Mayday stall in bigger Cessnas. You know, we were, were talking about the 206s. I saw some 180s and 182s. You know, it just depends. But I think it does make you a better pilot, but it's very demanding. And let's be honest, you have to be on your game when you're participating in this kind of flying, whether or not it's for a competition. You know, folks who do it and do it well are out there almost every weekend, and they actually might do a lot more with stall than, than you and I might. I think it's great to learn it and know it and have it as a tool in your tool belt. Yeah, absolutely. All right, David, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. And on YouTube, also wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we'll see you. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly. <laughs>